Hi, everyone. This is Greg Myers, the host of the Leaders in Payments podcast. This is the first quarter 2021 Pulse of Payments update. Every quarter, we're going to produce two podcasts and two videos sharing insights about the state of the payments industry. Today's special guest is Krista Tedder, the Director of Payments at Javelin Strategy and Research. Hi, Krista, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today, Greg. Absolutely. So, Question one, given the new Biden administration here in the U.S. and the fact that the Democrats hold majorities in both the House and the Senate, how do you think the payments industry will be affected? And Greg, that's a really good question, something that we've been watching, because the next two years are going to be critical to getting different legislation passed. And the Senate Banking Committee last year really started to put some tells into the market to say, this is where we're going to be looking. And a decade ago, when we were looking at the Durbin Amendment, that made significant changes to debit and we're really thinking that there's going to be a second wave of interchange regulation on debit specifically, but there is also a potential to cap credit interchange. Um, If you look at the debit interchange, some people are saying, oh, that's regulated enough. We don't need to go any further. However, there are some gaps that the current legislation doesn't cover. For example, a fintech that is larger than a bank is not covered under the regulation the same way that a bank is. So with the big focus on big tech in various different aspects, that's an area we think will will be impacted. As well as if you think of how big tech plays in payments with Apple Pay and Google Pay, how that transaction is routed is going to be under some scrutiny. We've already seen some action and proposed legislation in the Senate subcommittee. The benefit of having the House being so tightly controlled, however, is that we're more likely to see some type of negotiation between the Democrats and Republicans because it is really 50-50 split until you add in the, the vice president into making the decision. So we do expect changes there. We also are going to be seeing movement on cryptocurrency, the wild ride that we've been seeing with Bitcoin and the valuation, being able to buy and sell crypto in digital wallets. We're really going to be seeing how that is going to move. Is it an asset? Is it going to be a currency? Can you use it at a point of sale? Everything that goes around crypto is is going to be scrutinized to the point where in the house, Regulation has been proposed that would require crypto entities to also become financial institutions. So that would create a whole new realm of challenger banks. We do have some silver linings, however, in some of the state regulations that were also passed in this past election on two different fronts, cannabis and online betting, gaming type of transactions. And there are more things that financial institutions can do to pull this type of transaction into the banked community. Right now, a lot of it is in non-traditional payments. There's ways of buying into these two different markets that really, through new regulation, can come into the banking realm. Specifically with cannabis, however, this one is very interesting because we now have half the states, give or take, uh, have cannabis legalized, whether for recreational or for medical purposes. What this does, however, is it goes right in the face of federal regulation that says it's illegal. 
The House has already passed legislation to legalize cannabis. It just needs to pass the Senate, which it has a very strong chance of getting passed with a Democratic uh, Senate and then signed by the president. So we really do see how in some areas we might feel the pension payments with different regulations, but in other areas, the regulation will be really beneficial and expand the ability to diversify how we pull payments into the bank versus have it sit in fintech. Sure. So in the post-COVID economy, which we all hope we can say post-COVID pretty soon, what changes do you expect to see in the payments industry? I really expect to see an acceleration continue. We say that we've had years of digital payment adoption in just a few months. And that is absolutely correct. We've gone years without this rapid rise. However, we now have a group of consumers who are now used to trying new things. Because one of the questions we ask in all of our consumer surveys is related to, are you an early adopter? Do you like to adopt it after a friend uses it? And that really, we see where early adopter, kind of the tech people, that's about 20% of the population uh, will try something. To get to mass adoption, to get to the next 25, 30%, you really need to have people try things quickly. And that's what this has done. So the more people try technology and digital behavior, it's like once they get over the fear of doing it once, they'll then try the next thing that comes out much faster than they did before. So the acceleration will increase. Also think about what is old is new again. QR codes are having a resurgence as far as how they're coming through. QR codes can be EMV co-provided. And it's going to be where we're going to see not only PayPal and Venmo, but you'll see Amazon Pay in your local store. You will see different ways of paying to really help diversify a payment strategy for merchants. But one of the things that I haven't seen is really a focus on reducing the cost of payments. So if we look at the cost of a voice-based payment through Alexa versus a PayPal QR code versus a standard card transaction, the pricing is so varied. And in a way, we have things in a reverse revenue model in that the more secure a payment is, the more we charge for it versus the more secure, the lower the cost because you want more people to pay that way. So that's where the economy is really going to shift in the number of ways we can pay. But then the add-on of the COVID economy is really taking a look at the cost structure. Hey, everyone. As you know, I've worked in the payment space for a long time. A lot has changed over the years, and we talk about those changes a good bit on the show. But some things in this industry never change. For example, attrition is always a concern, and so is your bottom line. And PCI noncompliance fees will always be a part of the industry, driving that bottom line, but also keeping us up at night, worrying about that attrition, especially when the inevitable PCI noncompliance fee hike is underway. That's why I'm excited to bring in Company.com as a sponsor. Right when you're increasing fees, give your merchants something of value too. 
The company.com security suite is the perfect way to add value by offering a real-time security dashboard with antivirus, expert tech support, anti-phishing software, dark web scanning, and more. Company.com offers various product assortments and solutions that have proven to reduce merchant attrition for years now, and this new security suite that complements your current PCI program will be a game changer for you. Learn more at www.company.com or email securitysuite at company-corp.com. The link is also on our website. Now back to my interview with Krista Tedder. So do you expect the M&A activity to continue at the current pace? The pace is going to stay high for a couple of years, I believe, because we have a lot of payment tech companies globally who they might have started out in brick and mortar tech, or they might have started out in e-commerce. But now we're really looking at the omni-commerce experience, where as a consumer, if I go onto the store's mobile app and then I go into their physical store, the prices should match. We've done some testing. They don't always match online versus uh, in store. And a lot of times that's just because systems aren't talking together or being able to pay orders, order online and pick up in store. We're really changing the way people think about commerce. And so if you have a company that does one piece, it can be really difficult to spend the time, but also the capital to build it yourself. When if you look across the the marketplace, there could be five companies offering it, just go buy one of the five. And we're going to also see some large players that are going to be entering conversations because of the shift in landscape. Newsbrook end of last year, FIS and Global Payments were looking at or having conversations on merging that fell through. I believe that fell through personally. I think that was the right decision because they're too similar. However, if you get two large companies coming together that are very different, when you tie their technology together, could really change the marketplace. That's where you'll see the very large acquisitions coming in place versus the smaller strategic, we need to buy this capability. So it's definitely something that's going to continue as well as I would say, look for more IPOs and SPACs, more things will be going as options on the stock market. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Final question, do you think the level and amount of investment from PE firms and venture capitalist companies will continue or or rise in 2021? What's the outlook for that? I think it will increase specifically in payments because there is such an appetite to be on the cutting edge from these PE companies, PE firms. And It really is going to, however, depend, frankly, on how this Robinhood fiasco comes through. Again, they are raising money. Uh, So I think it all depends on the vertical. When we think about where private equity really invests, there's various different sectors of payments. Uh, Healthcare tech is going to be huge to fix the payment healthcare uh, apparatus in the United States. It's a mess. You also have insure tech, you have wealth tech. There's so many different sectors that they have the ability to invest that there will be. Now, will they invest in solid consumer payments? Maybe not as much. 
because they've been going on this ride for a long time. But there are so many different areas of payments that need help and funding. I think payment companies should be open to private equity in respect that if you are in a payment vertical that can wildly shift on the stock market, the stock market is very volatile right now. And being able to build and provide payments where you don't have to meet quarterly expectations, but you're building for the long term, private equity can give that. Well, Krista, are there any other trends or topics you wanted to to cover on the show today? I think one of the key trends to see is the fact that uh, as a payment professional, it is extremely important for us to look international, to see what other countries are doing. One of the things, having worked in over 50 different countries myself in, in various different respects, is that the United States has been slow to adopt mobile payments. And if you think about mobile payments are are growing at a fast pace now, but we could have been there five years ago. We could have had EMV and contactless be the standard a decade ago. It's really important to see how digital payments can change by looking at the countries that really move quickly. If we take a look at countries that have had different type of coronaviruses before, Japan, South Korea, China, I think it's really important for people to look at the payments there and and how things are changing. So although things are changing drastically here for us, take the time to really look uh, to see where it could go and see if you can kind of nudge people along faster. Yeah, I think that's some some great advice. So Krista, thank you so much for all the great insights you shared today. I really appreciate you being on the show. So thanks again for your being on the show and for your time today. Thanks so much, Greg. I enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. <laughs>